Tonight's reading is taken from Luke chapter 6, starting at verse 36, and it can be found on page 1034 in the church, in the church Bibles. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. He also told them this parable. Can a blind man lean a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A student is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognizable by its own fruit. People do not pick, uh, pick figs from thorn bushes, nor grapes from braes. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like when he, who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundations on rock. When the flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on ground without foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening, everyone. If we haven't met yet, my name is Dave. Um, now, <laughs> let me tell you, when I fell in love with my wife, it was eight years ago, and I had been a new member of the church which she spoke about joining. Okay, I came to that church probably around uh, six, uh, maybe 12 months after she did, and I was a brand new Christian. Um, background to me was before I was a Christian, uh, I was married and divorced at the age of 22. I had two children uh, for my first marriage who lived in Ireland, and I was in Australia. I obviously have awful tattoos. I was in the army. Um, you know, I was just a great catch for a young Christian woman, you can imagine. I mean, but I'm in church one day, and you're meant to be focusing on the preacher, and I want to encourage you to do so right now and not to focus on a potential um, spouse. However, I'm there in church, and I look in front of me, and there's this... You know, I can only see the back of her head, but she, she does her hair. And I'm meant to be singing, and I'm distracted by this girl doing her magnificent hair, and that was my beautiful wife, Samantha. Uh, I quickly tried to make every effort to, to know her as possible. It's a, a thing in Australian Christian circles to impress females is to move chairs around a lot. Is that a thing here? Do you know what I mean? Like, after church, oh, if you can move six chairs, look at this, eight, oh, look at... Look how servant-hearted I am, so on and so forth. I vacuum, do all these things to <clears throat> show uh, how wonderful I was. And um, I, did, I started doing all those tried and tested methods with Sam, but there was a problem. Sam had a boyfriend, um, and that was a problem. Not for her, but for me uh, and my intentions. So I pined for her for a very, very long time, uh, for months and months and months. Uh, and eventually, she broke up with her boyfriend, and I pounced. I mean, within a space of 48 hours... Sam, 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 and so on and so forth and the rest. 
is history. Now, something happened when Sam and I started going out. The more I got to know Sam, believe it or not, the more I liked her. And now, as we've gone on, we've now been married for just over seven years, I like her even more today than I did when I first met her. Not all the time, but most of the time. <laughs> I can't say the same for her feelings, but it might be the opposite. But nonetheless, that's what's happened. Now, the way I felt changed what I did. Does that make sense? So before Sam and I were going out, you know, I, I really lived a life focused on myself. I'd go out with my mates, I'd do what I wanted, I'd hang out. I'd, whatever my life was my life, and that's what happened. But when I started dating Sam, well, suddenly the actions of my life began to change. I stopped hanging out with my mates as much and started trying to hang out with with Sammy, I texted her a lot. I spent a lot of time thinking and planning our future together, all these kinds of things, because my feelings dictated my actions. That's not odd. It's very, very normal for that to happen. The question for all of us here tonight, regardless of your week, your month, your year, regardless of how close at the moment you feel to God, is how does what you feel about God dictate how you act? Are your actions determined by your belief? Is your behavior determined by your belief? Or is the opposite true? Do your behaviors determine your beliefs? Are you a, a victim to the whim and the weakness of your personal behaviors? So much so that you only feel close to God when you're behaving well. And you feel very distant when you're being sinful. Which way is it? Jesus promises us that when we follow him, our lives will change. And I don't think there's a person in here who's a born-again Christian who loves the Lord Jesus Christ, who doesn't deep down have a desperate desire to see their lives continually transform. A dissatisfaction, a healthy dissatisfaction with the present. A desire for zeal, for passion. But it doesn't always work out like that, does it? It's difficult. Jesus promises us, though, that what we believe should transform how we behave and what we believe should transform everything about us. The question is, how? How does it work? What does it look like? We've been looking at the Gospel of Luke uh, since the beginning of this year, and so far we've seen some incredible things about this man, Jesus. We saw his birth, his childhood, the only records we have of Jesus as a teenager... You know, these incredible scenes. Throughout Luke, what has been proclaimed is Jesus' true identity. Who is this man? That this man, Jesus of Nazareth, 2,000 years ago, this carpenter from a know-nothing town, he is not an ordinary man. He is an extraordinary man. And he is not just a man at all. He is actually God. And we've reached this point now where he's begun his earthly ministry and he's doing teaching and preaching and healing. Incredible miracles, making people really pay attention to, to who he is and grasp hold of his true identity. But now, as we looked at the last time we saw Luke, he's gathered his disciples together. I want you to imagine the scene on a great open plain in a rural area. He's gathered them all together and he's teaching them about what the Christian life looks like, what it looks like to live a life where your behaviour is determined by your belief. And the words that Jesus says to his disciples 2,000 years ago are the same words that he says to us today in Belfast 2019. So let's pray together right now that we would hear what God says to us through his word. Should we do that? Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Father Lord, thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you that... You have not left us to our own devices. You have not left us in our sin, but you sent your son 
to die for our sin, to rise from the dead. Now, Lord, you are not a silent Lord. You are not a silent God. You are not a distant God, a disinterested and uncaring God. You are a God who speaks. But, Lord, for many of us, we feel very distant from you. For many of us, Lord, we, we've imposed upon ourselves with our sinfulness a silence. And Lord, for many of us, even coming to church is the last thing we want to do. Hearing from you is the last thing we want to do. But Father, you speak through your word and we pray tonight through your spirit that we would hear what you say. We would not leave here unchanged but transformed, continually growing more in the knowledge of your son Jesus. We pray all of this in his mighty and powerful name. Amen. So what kind of behaviour is it that Jesus wants for Christians? If you were with us two weeks ago before Easter, we looked at Jesus just in the first part of Luke chapter 6, telling some incredible things to his followers. He says crazy things to them like, love your enemies, forgive your enemies. If someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. If someone steals your cloak, give them your shirt. Treat other people as you would want to be treated. Jesus is making it clear, not that your behaviour makes you a Christian, but to be a Christian, to be a true follower of Jesus, does mean a transformed life. And it will not come naturally, you will not fall into it. Oh, suddenly I love my, my enemies. No, no, no. But a life of discipline, a life of determination, that we must count the cost of what it means to follow Jesus. And so now, right at the end of this sermon, he says something else following the same tangent, but something just as radical and just as just as controversial as countercultural. You'll see it here, it's going to be on the screen. Chapter 6, verse 37. This is what Jesus says to his followers. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Now, believe it or not, 30 years ago, the most well-known Bible verse in the world was, does anyone want to have a stab? You can shout it out. We can pretend we're Pentecostal. Anyone? John 3.16, thank you, Demi. John 3.16. Now, if you're American in particular, at every sporting event, you'd see people holding big signs. John 3.16. If you don't know what the verse is, well, I'll encourage you to look it up. But pretty much it's a, it's a I do know. I just don't want it. A, I, don't, I won't prove it to you, but I do know it. But whatever the case, John 3.16 is a summary, if you like, of the Christian faith of what it means to be a Christian in one verse. It describes Christianity. And so it was a very common verse that Christians would use. But over the last 30 years, as the Western world has changed and the culture that we live in has changed, I reckon this verse is now the most commonly quoted verse in the world, the Western world certainly. Do not judge. Don't judge. Can I tell you, as, as Christians, we certainly hear this verse thrown at us by an outside onlooking world, don't we? If ever Christians take a stand over a moral issue or a spiritual issue... Very quickly, this verse is wheeled out. You're not meant to judge. And Christians certainly use this verse. The pressures and the, the trials and the temptations of the outside world, and we sit back and go, well, who am I to judge? We, we quote this verse. It's very easy to see why it's so popular, because no one likes being judged, do we? No one likes the idea of other people judging us. The culture we live in is morally um, relativist. And what that means is there is really no right and no wrong. What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. Who am I to tell you what to do? As long as you don't hurt anyone or transgress upon the, the socially moral majority opinion, then you just stick to yourself and let God or the gods sort it out. That's kind of the, 
main opinion of the outside world. And so people love this verse, do not judge. The question is, what does Jesus mean? Does this verse mean we are not to watch anyone and make a conscious decision or a conscious uh, feeling based on what they've done? Is that what Jesus is saying here? Is he saying that as Christian people, we're to step back and never make any conscious decisions upon anyone's behaviour? We're not to certainly warn people about sinfulness. We're not to warn people about rejecting God. We're not to warn other Christians about heresy, about bad teaching. We are just to remain silent. We're not to judge. Well, no. In fact, we know for a fact Jesus doesn't mean that. How do we know that? Well, all throughout the Gospels, in particular Matthew chapter 7, if you have an opportunity to look it up, you see Jesus tell his followers to judge. He tells them to watch out for false prophets and false teachers. And you can't watch out for false prophets unless you take a measure of judgment upon what they're saying. He says in evangelism, don't cast your pearls to pigs. Now, how do you work out who a pig is unless you judge? As the New Testament progresses more and more, there are more and more examples of times Christians are told that we are to use discernment. We are to make right judgments, to test spirits, to hold elders to a higher standard. Hebrews chapter 5 in particular convincingly shows that a benchmark of Christian maturity is the ability to judge wisely. So what does Jesus mean when he says, do not judge? Well, the key to understanding this verse is by acknowledging and comprehending that the word judgment actually has several meanings. Of course, it's not alone. The English language is full of words like that. If I say, Ryan, you look really cool, I could mean two things, couldn't I? One, you look really well-dressed. Where did you shop? Or two, are you a bit cold? English is full of words that have multiple meanings, and judgment is one of them. Think of it. Judgment could refer to what a judge does in a courtroom. Weighing up the evidence of someone's guilt or innocence legally using justice. Now, are we to say no Christian is to be a judge? That'd be a problem. Or it can mean weighing up options and making conclusions. Perhaps the word you'd more commonly use is discernment. And can I say, you make little discerning judgments every single day. Who your friends are, who you will marry, who you'll go out with, what will you do for work, what route you will take to work, what is better, what is worse. You also make judgment calls, discernment calls on different people. I've got five children. And I make little judgment calls about their friends. Is this person a good influence or a bad influence on them? Is that someone I want my child hanging out with? Are they a good or bad influence? We might go to the beach and I look at the ocean and I say, well, that ocean is too rough for my wife to swim in. Darling, I don't think you should do that. Now, that's ironic because I actually can't swim and she can. But just pretend that that was the case. Spiritually, are there any calls for judgment in our life? Well, of course there are. If I stood here and said to you that Jesus is not God, you should judge me. You should make a discernment against me. You should challenge me. That is absolutely right. That is absolutely biblical. That is absolutely mandated. So what is Jesus talking about here? Well, to understand fully what his meaning is, look at verse 36 and 37 together. It'll be on the screen. He says, Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. My dear friends, what Jesus is speaking of here is not making a moral discernment. He's speaking here of judgmentalism. 
a critical and condemning spirit and attitude towards others from a position of puffed up self-righteousness. Do you understand that? Condemning others, someone as inferior to yourself. That is judgmentalism and that is the type of judgmentalism that we are to avoid. That is a type of judgmentalism that is absolutely wicked for a Christian to partake in. The problem is, we love it, don't we? We do this sort of thing all the time. We're constantly making little judgment calls, little decisions, little remarks that prove that we value and think of ourselves higher than others. It could be the person at work who's slightly embarrassing, who does things that you look at and go, oh my, how could they act like that? It could be the person who you know who's meant to be a friend who continually lets you down. And you think, what is wrong with them? Or perhaps it's the person you know, maybe even in this room, you look at them and you know you've seen them do something a little bit morally questionable and you think, how could they do that? I would never do that. You know, I was trying to think of a few examples to tell you, to illustrate this, but I'm struggling to do so simply because of the weight of examples I could use. Just this week, my brother-in-law and his, uh, his girlfriend were in town, um, non-Christians, and we took him out, and um, I can't remember where we went. We came back home, and we drove back home, and there's a car park outside the front of my house that I always park in, and there was a, there was a bloke standing in the, on the road, sort of waiting to cross the road. So we had this sort of awkward moment where I'm trying to pull the car into the car park and he's standing in the car park so I sort of break two metres away from him and he stands there and we end up just looking at each other. (laughs) And he starts doing this. And I start going... (laughs) And I'm like, move! And he's like, move! I wind the window down and I say, mate, I live here. I'm trying to pull in. And he says, congratulations. (laughs) And so audibly and loudly in front of my non-Christian brother-in-law and his fiance, his girlfriend, in front of my children, I say the word to this guy, idiot. And pull in the car. How could he act that way to me? Doesn't he know who I am? Isn't he intimidated by my physical stature? Can't he see I'm trying to do something logical? My goodness, what a fool. My dear friends, who's guilty of this? You don't have to put your hand up. I know you are. The amount of times per week I would act this way towards other people. What's behind my attitude? Judgmentalism. Now, it's bad enough when it's very pragmatic and very practical like the example I've just used, but spiritually speaking, can I, can, let's be frank right now, spiritually speaking, holding yourself up as spiritually superior to someone else is absolutely wicked. It is wicked. It is especially biblically vile to hold yourself up as in some way or another spiritually superior to someone else. Why? Well, Jesus then goes on to give three parables as to why this is such a vile and wretched behaviour of people. But I want to focus just on the last one. Have a look at verse 41 to 42. This is a well-known parable that Jesus uses. He uses it in the book of Matthew as well. I'll read it out. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. 
First take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It's a simple parable to understand, isn't it? How can I look at Ryan, for example, and just say he's got a tiny little speck of dust in his shirt? And just say, before I got here, I'm taking a drink of Coca-Cola and I spill it everywhere over my shirt. I'm like, Ryan, you grub, look at you. Oh my goodness, what's wrong with you? I love doing this to Ryan in particular. I mean, that would be absolutely hypocritical, wouldn't it? It would be obscene. And how many times do you do the same thing spiritually to other people, constantly to other people? But I want to be clear here, this is not a call to have no discernment. Have a look. This is not a call to never speak to anyone about sin. This is about the position from which you do it. What Jesus is condemning here is not pointing out that people fall short of the mark. We are called to to help one another, to, to encourage one another in our spiritual walks. If I see one of you falling into a sinful behavior, it's absolutely right that I speak to you and say, brother, sister, get back on course. If I do the same, it's absolutely right that you do the same thing. If one of you starts listening to a preacher from overseas who I know is preaching something contrary to the Bible and you start speaking to other people about it, it's absolutely right that that we have a conversation. The issue is believing that you're in some way morally or spiritually superior. Now, we're not talking about maturity here, spiritual maturity. There are different levels of spiritual maturity. We're talking about superiority. Look at verse 41. How can you say remove this speck when you fail to see the plank of wood in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the plank out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brothers. You see, Jesus reserves a special vehemence to religious hypocrites. Holding other people to a standard that you would never hold yourself to. Viewing everyone else's behaviour through the lenses of criticism and cynicism, yet painting your own ugliness as beauty. Painting your own filthiness, your own selfishness as a beautiful thing. This is hypocrisy. And of all the things Christians can be, hypocrites should be the last thing on our list. Now keep in mind, of course, who has Jesus got in his sights here? If you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll know that amongst this group... And in the interactions Jesus has had, the Pharisees are there. And the Pharisees are the religious rulers of that day. Men who said you can achieve moral perfectionism in your behavior. Men who believed it was possible to impress God so much as to earn their way to heaven. Men who implemented severe morality laws upon other people. And yet men who fed themselves and got rich from doing it. Jesus has a special vehemence. For religious hypocrites, why is that such an issue for Jesus? Look at verse 36. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. You see, the truth of the matter is all of us here who are Christians, and I know not everyone here is a Christian, but if you are a Christian here tonight, you are not a Christian on the basis of your worthiness. You are not a Christian on the basis of your morality. You are not a Christian on the basis of your good works. You are a Christian despite your sinful wretchedness. That is the truth. You cannot become a Christian through moral achievement or good works. The only way you become a Christian is through your Father in heaven's mercy. And what is mercy? Mercy is withholding a just punishment. And that is the core of what Christianity is about. That everyone in this room deserves punishment for the way that we've turned our back on God. And the Bible calls that sin. And yet despite the sinfulness of our hearts and the sinfulness of our lives, we are loved by God. You are loved by God. He looks at you and he, there is no 
reason for him to love you, but he loves you more than you love anyone or anything. God loves you, and because he loves you, he sent Jesus to die on your behalf. That is what it is to be a Christian, not to be good enough to God, but to know you're not good enough for God. And the only way you can become a Christian is through understanding your own unrighteousness, your own depravity, your own wretchedness. And once you know that, my dear friends, let me ask you this question. Once you realize your own depravity, once you realize your own carnality, once you realize your own sinfulness, how is it possible that you could look at someone else and say, how dare you? How is it possible? It's absurd that you could observe someone else and be full of judgmental condemnation. Because what you've received is mercy and we should be the last people to throw stones at other people or other people's behaviour. As I said, this is not a call not to discern over good behaviour and it's not even a call not to call out sin, but it is a call never to do it from a position of personal authority or personal spiritual superiority. Because the truth is we know, even right now, no matter how mature you are in your Christian faith, you are still a sinner and if you were judged by your actions, you would be in deep trouble. You see, my friends, as Jesus finishes off this sermon in Luke chapter 6, something becomes very clear for us that following Jesus is not easy. It is absolutely necessary for you to count the cost of what it means to be a Christian. Being a Christian is not at one point in your life standing up at a revival meeting and saying, yes, I believe. And then suddenly, boom, 60 years later, that's it. No, no, no. Following Jesus is a daily discipline. It's running contrary to your sinful nature. Jesus is calling you to change the way you think, to change the way you feel, to change the way you act. The question is how you do it. One of the wonderful things about Facebook is it reminds you, you know, do you like those um, memories that come up on your Facebook? You know, now Facebook's been around for 10 years, so you're getting the ability to look back to 2009 or 2008 and see these stupid things and stupid things you were wearing, you know, 10 years ago, and think, oh my goodness, there was a time I didn't have grey hair. Oh my goodness, look at this stuff. 10 years ago, I wasn't a Christian. I became a Christian in August 2009. So right now, all my memories are in my last few months before conversion. It's really fun to watch and embarrassing for me to, to watch the stupid stuff I used to post about and talk about and and do. I became a Christian through someone explaining to me that Jesus Christ died for sinners, that despite the sinfulness of my life, my sexual depravity, my alcohol abuse, my physical violence, my lying, my cheating, my fraudulent behaviour, my utter wretchedness, God loved me, Jesus died for me, my sin qualified me for his grace, did not disqualify me from his kingdom. And I became a Christian. And let me tell you, for the first two weeks of my Christian life, I was the super Christian. I was just a woo, hillsong on the speaker, driving around, telling everyone, I'm a Christian. But fast forward six months from then, so around nine years ago, you know, it all began to unravel. I found it so hard to follow Jesus. I'd still go to church, but I was back partying again and drinking and chasing girls. Except now I was lying about it. In the past I hadn't lied about it because I didn't care what people thought. Now I was a Christian at church and I felt, oh, I've got to keep it secret. I can't tell anyone. And I remember going to my bedroom, flinging myself on the bed and crying out to God, God, please don't, don't let me fake this. Don't let this be pretend, Lord. I, I don't want this to be a pretend 
action on my behalf. I don't want this to be all make-believe. I want it to be real. God, help me stand firm. Help me, Lord. And he did. God did. I'm, I'm here today as a result of many prayers like that. And I want to encourage you today that potentially you're in that same position. You might not have been a Christian for six months. You might have been a Christian for six years, 60 years. And you might find yourself distant from God. I expressed and told some of you last week that personally I'm in a really rough season with God. I'm feeling spiritually dry and spiritually distant from God. And maybe you're in a position like that. So how do we grow? How do we stand firm? How do we grasp hold of the transformed life that we're promised? Well, Jesus shows us as he finishes off this incredible sermon in verse 46 to 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation the moment the torrent struck that house. It collapsed and its destruction was complete. All of us are building houses. Do you get that? All of us are building houses. Our lives are the houses that we build. And if you're alive, if you're living, you are building a house. You're building a house with your life. And Jesus says the foundation upon which you build that house, the foundation upon which you are currently this very moment building the house of your life will make all the difference in the house that you're building. The parable presents us with two different options. Person one, the person who builds their house, their life on, what does he call it? The rock. When the flood comes, the torrent comes, the house could not be shaken. The house was well built because of the foundation. The house remains strong. But person number two, the person who builds their life, who builds their house, well, he says here, uh, the person who hears my words does not put them in the practice of ground without a foundation. In the book of Matthew, he says, the person who builds the house on a sand, the sand. This person's life, their house is unsteady and insecure. And when the flood comes, the house is destroyed and collapses. What does this mean? My dear friends, what this means is that if you are a Christian, no matter if you're a Christian or not, you will face trial, you will face the torrent of temptation and sinfulness and suffering in your life. Being a Christian is not a security blanket against suffering. And it's not a magical spell where you're no longer going to be tempted by sin, where all the sins of your previous life are suddenly vanquished. That is not true. You will struggle with sin. The people you know and love will leave this earth and struggle and suffer. So how do you face it? It's all about the foundation your life is built on. What does Jesus say? The foundation that is strong, the one that is the rock, steady and secure is what? Look, it's the person who listens, who hears, who puts into practice what Jesus says. The foundation that collapses and falls, it is anyone who puts their faith in anything that is not the word of God. The person who hears what Jesus says and ignores him. And we see this weaving connection between your works and your faith. That you are not saved by your works. But when you are saved, your works are transformed. 
And the transformation of your works is not sitting back and saying, God, change me. It is 100% the Holy Spirit active in your heart and 100% yourself as a disciplined, determined Christian seeking to sanctify and grow and mature. What does it look like for you to live your life upon a weak foundation? Well, it's very, very simple. It means to have your hope for this life in anything other than Jesus Christ. My beautiful wife, Sammy, she spoke before about what that can look like on a secular level. Sam's friends are... They are loaded. Okay, loaded people. Kind of people who their 18th birthday, they get, they get to choose between the Mercedes and the Audi and the BMW. You know, they're loaded people. Their hope for the future is in their material wealth. But when the torrent comes, it will not last. They will leave this earth. They will suffer. They will be judged. It will not last. And I have no idea what it is for you. You don't need to be rich to be greedy. You can be poor and be greedy. It might well be money and the desire for professional and financial accomplishment. It might be your desire for sexual gratification, professional expertise, or indeed it could be the desire to have the absence of something you currently have. That you believe in the future, well, when I'm not bullied, when I don't struggle with my weight, when I'm not sick, when I'm not poor, then I'll have what I desire. That's your hope. That's your treasure. But my dear friends, that is a shaky foundation that will not last. But far deeper than that, for you as a Christian, can I be perfectly clear with you right now that if the foundation of your faith is anything other than the Word of God, it will crumble. If your faith is based on your emotionalism, when I'm feeling good, God is good. When I'm feeling bad, God is awful. If it's based on music, man, when that bridge kicks in, I love God. But that verse, eh, not so much. When it's based on family obligation, so pertinent for us in Northern Ireland, when it's based on do-goodism, when the persecution comes, when the pressure builds, when things fall apart, when sinfulness tempts us, When death stares us in the face, your faith will fall away. And can I say to you right now that we, when I say we, as in pastors, pastors here at Uni Church, at All Saints Church, we see this all the time. In my time in professional ministry, paid ministry, this has been the issue. People whose faith is pretend or plastic. People whose faith is all built around one of these alternate exterior motives, ulterior motives, but actually... When something happens, sexual temptation, illness, ethical challenge, their theology bends to change with their morality, their faith loses traction, it's all built on sand, it all falls away. That's what happens. But to have your faith on a firm foundation means to live a Christ-shaped life with your life upon the rock of the Word of God. That your faith is built on the words that Jesus says and you do not just hear them and go, oh, that's very nice, Jesus. That's great that you say these things. No, no, you put into practice what he says. When he says, do not judge, you discipline yourself to flee from judgmentalism. When he says, forgive your enemies, you discipline yourself to look your enemy in the face and love them. When he says, obey me, you know that every instinct inside of you wants to disobey God. But you fight that instinct and desire to follow what Jesus has said, my friends. This is Jesus who created us. Jesus who died for us, Jesus who justifies us and he has given us the building blocks we need to grow, to mature. This is a call to conform your thoughts, your desires, your words, your actions into what Jesus has said. So practically, what does this mean? Well, let me be very, very brief. 
What does it look like to do what Jesus says surrounding judgmentalism? My dear friends, Jesus' call to not judge others means to, means to completely transform how you view other people, completely transform how you view yourself. How do you do that? The only way to do that is to completely transform how you view God. That when you truly understand God, His graciousness, His mercy, His love, His kindness, His forgiveness, when you truly understand what it cost Him to send His Son to die for your sins, that crushes your feelings of superiority amongst others. And can I say right now, the church above all other places is the one place which should be free of judgmentalism. When I became a Christian, as I said, divorced, you know, feeling wretched, feeling completely as if I was going to walk into a church and people were going to throw, you know, eggs at me. Like, oh my goodness, who is this guy? When my wife walked into a church, hung over, from working at the pub next door, you know, and walked into church. All the fears, because the church, the church has this reputation of being a place of judgmentalism, doesn't it? It's got a very poor, we have a very poor reputation and track record with it. But what I found was grace. Constant love, constant encouragement, constant embracing, constant understanding. Not a condemnation of who I'd been, but a celebration of what Jesus had done in my heart. And six months later when I stuffed up again, and a year later when I stuffed up again and again and again. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. That is who we are to be. And can I say, us as a church, that is what we are to strive to be like. That means you taking an interest in other people. That means you sitting down with other people. That means you listening to other people. That means you making an effort with other people, trying to find out what they're struggling with, not tut-tutting, but hugging, loving, weeping with, laughing with. And I understand these things don't come naturally. I'm an introvert. I find hanging out with other people absolutely exhausting. Not you guys, just everyone else outside. <laughs> but my dear friends, this is the call for the Christian to show an interest in one another, to love one another. This is Christian community. So that in a year's time, if you completely stuff up, you do something absolutely terrible, then your Christian friends, your pastors, your Bible study leaders, your whatever, they're not the last people you tell, they're the first people you tell. Because we are in this together as children of God. And what does it look like for you to build a house, a house that lasts? Well, I've got to be very clear about this. As Uni Church, we have growth groups that meet every week. We do that not just to give you guys something to do during the week because you're bored. We do that because we believe that people sitting under the Word of God, discussing the Word of God, living and sharing lives in Christian community, as imperfect as it can be from time to time, is the model of how to best live that out. Can I encourage you, if this is your church, to join a growth group? There'll be an opportunity to sign up to do that in a minute. Can I encourage you to get involved in serving? Here we've got around eight different serving teams at UniChurch. Setup team, music team, PowerPoint team, all these kinds of things. Now as much as we love having you guys do things, that's actually not the primary purpose. The primary purpose of those things is so we build the church together. We live in community together. We are on mission together. Can I encourage you to serve? To not be a Baymarie buffet Christian who picks and chooses, but actually go in two feet first to build your house around the Word of God. And that way, your behavior reflects your belief. Your belief, who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, 
the transformative power of what that's done for your eternity transforms the day-to-day reality of your Monday to Sunday. Not a person as a prisoner of your dreams and hopes in this life, but a a person set free to focus your life under heaven as a child in the kingdom of God. Let's pray to our great God. Father, Lord, thank you so much for your son Jesus, for his words. Lord, thank you so much that he has spoken to us. We pray through the power of your spirit that we will listen, that we will hear, that we will challenge ourselves to love others, to love you, to forgive, not to judge, to discern with wisdom, yes, but not to judge. Lord, that we could be men and women, boys and girls, who seek to live out Christ crucified, to be Christian people. We pray, Lord, for the men and women here tonight who are not Christians, we pray for your Spirit's work in their hearts. Forgive them, Lord. Bring them to you. Let them see the amazing wonder of Jesus died on the cross and risen from the dead for them. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.